could please. I, I, I stand over here because we used to sit over here. <laughs> but there's, there's more of us now, so we're starting to spread that direction. So I may have to move to the center. But uh, I'm going to stay here for this morning because that's where the mic is. Let's go ahead and get started uh, with a word of prayer, if we could, please. Our Father, we do give praise to your name this morning for the joy of coming together as the body of Christ. We rejoice that we have the scriptures and that we have the privilege of studying them. As we do so this morning, Lord, we ask that your spirit would illumine our minds and show us the truth, help us to uh, get it right, Lord, and Help us to, as we understand the scriptures, to incorporate them into our thinking that they might uh, direct us in how to think and act in our lives today for these things are pertinent and applicable to the way we live. And so, Lord, that's our desire is to grow more Christ-like as we study the scriptures. And Lord, we understand that the scriptures were not given to confuse but to give clarity And so we trust you in that, and that your spirit would help us to understand. And Lord, for these things, we are truly thankful. Thank you for the opportunity to come together freely and to openly discuss what the scriptures say. Lord, uh, this is a great blessing for us, and we don't take it for granted. So we give glory to your name this morning, and we pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. So this is week number 28 in our study of the book of Daniel, and we, we've had an influx of people recently, so I want to kind of give you um, what's been going on. We've been in this study um, for over, I guess it's a little beyond two years now. Uh, the church wanted to uh, study the book of Revelation, so we said, yeah, we can do that, but there's a lot of background that comes out of the Old Testament that we really need to have a grasp of to some degree before we can go to the book of Revelation and really understand uh, what is given there. Previously when I taught Revelation, this is a few years ago, and by the way it took four years to walk through that book, um, I found myself having to go back to the Old Testament over and over and over again. So I thought this time what I'd do is start there. Uh, So we get the foundation and and we actually stepped Uh, even further back than that and we spent over a year looking at the scriptures out of uh, selected scriptures out of uh, Genesis um, out of uh, Exodus out of Deuteronomy out of Joshua uh, a little bit in uh, 2nd Kings a little bit in 2nd Chronicles um, the entire book of Ezekiel the first 33 chapters and somewhat of an overview, the last uh, 15 chapters verse by verse, we walk through the the book of Ezekiel, and then we started into this study of Daniel. So all of that has taken two years or or so. Um, Our purpose in that original study was to find out what God's plan for the land is the way I like to think of it was. Uh, the promises given to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, then passed down, uh, certainly to Joshua, um, and, and further on down um, through the history of the Israelites. We looked at 
um, the book of Joshua in great detail to see did the Israelites ever take all of the land. Uh, I think it's pretty clear from Joshua's dying words that they had not and that they did not. Um, as you go on into um, the period of the judges and then you come out of that period and you have the three kings of Israel, uh, be Saul, David, and um, where is Solomon? Um, and then the kingdom is split into two. And so we've walked through all that history to be able to trace the line of the land. And you wind up in Ezekiel, where the land again becomes very prominent. And so we, we to the best of our ability, looked at those things and tried to come to some conclusions about what Ezekiel writes. And that leads right into Daniel. Daniel wrote before and after Ezekiel. Ezekiel's kind of in the middle. They're about the same age. Um, Daniel apparently lives a good bit longer than Ezekiel does uh, and continues to write. And that's when he has these visions that we're looking at now. Now, in addition to all that, when we first started this study, I kind of opened up with some um, just defining marks about Canton Bible Church. And, and this is important because people have different views, different interpretation, different ways that they look at this. And so it's important for you to realize um, that I stay to what is written in our doctrinal statement and that um, we use a literal, hermene uh, a literal grammatical hermeneutic, which leads us to the conclusion that the millennial kingdom of God is a literal kingdom. It didn't last for a thousand years. That comes out of our hermeneutic. Um, we don't believe that the New Testament reinterprets the Old Testament. So that's a defining mark about who we are and how we look at these things. And so that's the same hermeneutic that I use as I walk through the book of Ezekiel and Daniel, is that same hermeneutic, believing these things are not um, just allegories, but a reality. Um, so there are people, and I've, I express it often as we've gone through this, who disagree and don't have that same viewpoint, who are true believers and love God every bit as much as we do. Um, I'm convinced of that, and yet I have read most of the arguments and studied both, you know, all the different viewpoints and come to the conclusions that I present. And that's the way that I teach it. Doesn't mean that I demand that you believe it the way I believe it, interpret it the way that I interpret it. Um, you don't have to do that. You don't even have to do that to be a member of Canton Bible Church. You don't have to ascribe to everything that we write in our doctrinal statement, especially um, eschatology. But what you do have to do to be a, a member of Canton Bible Church is believe in Jesus Christ. You have to embrace the doctrines of grace where we've been saved by faith and not by works and believe that Jesus Christ came as the Son of God and died and gave his life that we might be saved and then was resurrected and ascended back to the Father. Those things you have to believe to be a member of Canton Bible Church. But the others um, are open for interpretation. And we don't discourage other views. We welcome them, but always challenging people to come with a biblical argument, um, not just with what they've been taught or what they've learned. There's been a lot of stuff that I was taught as I grew up in the church, had the privilege and blessing to grow up in the church, that I've had to discard and get rid of because it wasn't biblical. And um, I've been in that process for a long time. Um, I wasn't reformed in my thinking and my doctrine. 
until um, 1997. And so I'd been a believer a long time uh, when my doctrine all of a sudden changed. And it changed, I, I give thanks to God for this, not because I read a book, not because someone taught me, not because I sat in a class, um, but because it rises out of the scriptures. I was teaching the book of Colossians, the second chapter, and the doctrines of grace hit me full in the face. And I had to wrestle with them. I didn't know what to call them. I didn't have handles to put on them, but I knew they were true because they rose out of the scriptures. Later, uh, through study, I've learned how to put handles on them and what to call them, but that wasn't true at the beginning. And I'm thankful for that, that God used the scriptures to teach me the doctrines of grace. And so now I embrace them, I teach them, I enjoy them, um, and, but you need to understand, as I come to the book of Ezekiel, what my hermeneutic is and what my perspective is. And if you just read our doctrinal statement, it'll be clear to you what we truly believe and, and what we believe that the scriptures teach. So I, I needed to say that because there's been several people who've begin, begun to come in the last few, really, uh, weeks and months and you need to know that that's what I'm going to teach. Um, doesn't mean you have to agree with me. Okay? So with that, we'll pick up in Daniel chapter 8 is where we're at. This is the second vision of Daniel during the reign of Belshazzar as king of Babylon. The first one was in the first year of, of uh, Belshazzar. This one's in the third year. So it follows the one in chapter 7 by two years and this is a vision about um, two of the beasts that we saw of the four beasts in the chapter 7 vision there were four beasts these are the middle two the second and the third beast they're represented were uh, by a ram who had two horns and verse uh, 19 explicitly says um, verse 20 sorry I think it is 19. I want to get this right. Um, verse 20 explicitly says that this ram are the kingdoms of Medo and Persia joined together, two horns, two kings, one longer than the other, one coming up after the other. Represent Cyaxares the second out of the Median per, uh, kingdom and Cyrus the first out of the Persian kingdom. Cyrus was younger, so he came up later, but he was longer, meaning he was stronger than Cyaxares was. And so that's the way we put those things together when we first saw them back in chapters 5 and 6. That's the way that they appear here. Two horns, one longer than the other, the longer one coming up after the shorter one. Fits perfectly with what we said previously. And then you have the goat, which in verse 21 is explicitly described as the kingdom of Greece. One singular horn representing, the scripture says, its first king, who would have been Alexander the Great. And so you have the, goat, the ram coming up first with his two horns, controlling in all directions, and then the goat coming up throwing the ram to the ground, shattering its horns, that represents Alexander the Great overtaking the Persian kingdom, and then quickly the horn on the goat is broken 
and out of it comes four smaller horns, not as strong as the first. And so Alexander the Great, represented by the one horn, uh, the goat not touching the ground as it came, just indicating its speed at which Alexander the Great conquered much of the known world, and then his untimely death um, shortly thereafter in the land of Persia. Not exactly sure what happened there, but we do know that four kings came up out of Alexander's kingdom to establish their own kingdoms. You had infighting for 40 to 50 years, and after all the dust settled, you had four kingdoms that had been established. The two strongest of those are Ptolemy, which is in Egypt, and the Seleucid, which is kind of in the Syrian age area and southward. And so those will be important. Um, those uh, explicit descriptions are important that we recognize that this is um, Medo-Persia and Greece is not Rome, which was represented in chapter 7 in great detail by the fourth beast. These are the second and third beasts of chapter 7. I think those things are, are pretty clear. There are people who disagree with me, of course. But, um, and then it becomes increasingly important. Last week we began to look um, really um, verse 8 and 9 and, and following. It becomes very important that we understand that this is the kingdom of Greece because in verse 9, it says, out of one of them, meaning out of the four kingdoms that came out of Alexander's kingdom, out of one of them comes an insolent king and one who is strong. So this is someone in one of those four kingdoms. And we don't know which one. We're not told in the scriptures which one of those four kingdoms this particular king comes from. But you'll see as we get probably two weeks from now, and we begin to talk about a king named Antiochus Epiphanes, that you'll see many of the things that we've already seen in the vision and that we'll continue to see today match what this king did. And um, so we'll, we'll try and put those things together and make some sense of that as we get a little further. First, I want to finish the vision finish the interpretation, and then talk about historical things that we know um, from the cuneiforms and other writings from the historians of the day, um, what took place, putting together, trying to put together both sides of the story, um, not just you know, what, uh, what one side says about it. And so um, that's what we'll try and do. First thing I wanna do today is look at verses 11 and 12. We looked at these last week, but I wanna kinda of enumerate the things that this king who comes up out of one of the four kingdoms does. So just reading verses 11 and 12 of Daniel chapter eight, there the scripture reads, if it even, meaning the horn, it even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down, and on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn, along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground, and perform its will, and prosper. Okay, so these are the, the activities, the actions of this one king. We, 
previously um, tried to look at several scriptures to see that the beautiful land, the land that is under attack here, is indeed the land of Palestine. And so it's where the Jews are, um, where they returned after uh, the Persians allowed them to return was back to Palestine, back to Judah, back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls of the city, all of that um, contained, we may look at some of that in Ezra and Nehemiah, clearly detail all the activities that the Jews did, those who did return, um, many of them stayed in Persia, but those who returned uh, rebuilt the temple, um, the temple known as Zerubbabel's temple, the temple that Herod expanded during the time of Jesus Christ. So, but this king, I want to look at the things that he does. In verse 11, he magnifies himself to be equal with the commander of the host. Now, the host we looked at, again, looking at several other passages in scripture that I believe are the host of, of God. It's the people of God. It's the earthly people of God. It's the Jewish nation, what was left of it at this time. And so the commander of the host would be who's in charge of the people of God. And that would be God himself, specifically Jesus Christ himself is the commander. So this king magnifies himself to be equal to God. Don't know if he sets up worship of himself. We know that some others later do. Um, what we don't know that this one does. But he at least sets himself to be equal to God. And we saw that same thing back in chapter 7, that there was one who was arrogant and boasting and making himself out to be God. It's not the same guy. Because that one in chapter 7 comes out of the Roman kingdom. This one comes out of the Grecian kingdom. And so you have to make distinctions about those things. Okay, so he magnifies himself to be equal to God, and then he throws down the sanctuary of God. And how does he do that? He causes the regular sacrifices to be stopped. Now that gives us somewhat of a time frame reference because the time when the Jews well, the first thing it indicates is they were regular sacrificing, right? Because you can't stop them if they're not ongoing. So the time when the Jews were regular sacrificing and then were forcibly stopped from sacrificing anymore are rare in history. I mean, several times they got off the tracks and they stopped them themselves, but to have someone else come in and stop them is a pretty rare event in history. And it narrows down to only a few occasions in history. So as we look at this, that will give us some reference as to who we're talking about and when we're talking about. Um, we know that, we don't know, well, we know this, that when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, that they were not, there were no ongoing sacrifices. The Jews long before Nebuchadnezzar got there had already gone off the rails, had already begun to worship other gods, had already allowed women into the inner sanctuary of the temple. All these things described as Ezekiel is preaching against the Jews that judgment is coming. It was clear that when Nebuchadnezzar got there, they were not doing regular sacrifices. So it's not talking about that time. 
because there were no regular sacrifices ongoing when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple. So it has to be sometime after that because here Daniel writes after, you know, 50, 60 years after Nebuchadnezzar, 50 years after Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the temple, here Daniel sits and has these visions. So we know it comes later and it has nothing to do with what Nebuchadnezzar did. So the king throws down the sanctuary by stopping the regular sacrifices and you know, we, we took time when we first looked at this to look at chapter 9 and verse 27, where we see another event where the sacrifices are stopped. And you'll remember this verse. Um, this verse is very pregnant with a lot of meaning that we'll get to later. I promise we will walk through it. But 927 says, And he, this is the prince of the people who are to come, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. So there is another occasion where you have the sacrifices forcibly stopped. And so they're ongoing at some point in history or in the future, and then they're stopped. Now we know today that the Jews don't have a temple and they don't offer sacrifices. They haven't since 70 AD. They haven't had regular sacrifices because they haven't had a temple. And so several things have to take place in order for the Jews to establish that regular sacrifice, but we're not there yet. And they're not sacrificing today. Um, so I personally believe they will in the future, but um, again, that's up for interpretation. Um, so these regular sacrifices, um, we have three times here in the scripture, in chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9, where they are stopped, where the temple is um, desecrated, if you would. And they're not all the same time. They're, they're not the same event. You, you know, we see it clearly in chapter 7. It's the, um, somehow out of the Roman kingdom, and we've talked about that and how that works. Um, you have the stoppage, and this one's out of the Grecian kingdom. We'll talk about chapter 9 when we get there. Which one does it match up to of the two we've already seen, or is it a third one that doesn't match? And these things are all up for us to try and glean from what is written in the scripture. And so it can be confusing, I understand that, but it's clear that chapter 7 and 8 are different events. All right, so we, we continue to walk through this. So he magnifies himself to be equal to God. He desecrates the temple by stopping the sacrifices and I think doing even worse than that. And we'll see that. Um, and then the third thing that he does is in verse 12 where it says, that's a page turn for me. And on account of, of, the tra of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice. So the host, literally the people of God, are given over to this king. And you notice what he does to them. Given over to the king with a regular sacrifice, and it will fl fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Back up in verse 10, you see... 
caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth and trample them down. He kills them. He destroys them. Not all of them, but some of them. And so we saw this in chapter 7. It was very clear. We saw this in the book of Revelation. It's very clear that the people of God, by the scores, are killed by the enemies of God. By the scores. You remember that picture uh, in Revelation that we saw of God sitting on his throne and a myriad of people who could not be numbered standing before him and the elder asked John, John, who are these people? And John goes, I don't have a clue, but you know, so tell me. And the elder says, these are the people who come out of the great tribulation. These are people who are killed during the great tribulation. That's how they get out. It's the only way to get out of it. And so um, it's very clear that several times in history, you see it in with Nebuchadnezzar invading. You see it when the Romans invade um, Jerusalem in 70 AD. You see it here pictured in Revelation. You see it in both of these visions of Daniel that the people of God are massacred by the ordination of God, by the control of God, by the will of God. His people are multiplied, scores of them are killed by these insolent, arrogant kings who arise in these visions. And so we saw it in spades in chapter eight and seven as we ran to Revelation to see the, the parallels that happened there. And now you see it again in, in chapter eight in this vision, this king, this insolent king, this arrogant king who comes out of one of the four king, kingdoms that come from the Grecian empire kill scores of the people of God. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and these kings don't think they're non-religious. The scripture doesn't say that anywhere, that they're non-religious. They're just not Christian religious. And so some of this, an element of this, will be um, sacrificed to their gods or to other gods or to strange gods um, in order to try to atone for their sins, which are ineffective. So um, nowhere does it say that these guys aren't religious. We, we see in some of the other passages that they clearly are religious. So, um, and you remember, you notice the language that is used here. That it, the scripture literally says here in verse 12, and on account of transgression, the host will be given over to them. Okay, that means that there's someone other than the king in control of what's happening here. Because the host can't be given over unless there's someone to give them over. 
So there's someone in control of all of this. And we know from what Daniel prayed back in chapter 2, as God gave him the vision of Nebuchadnezzar and the interpretation, and he praises God. And in verse chapter 2, verse 21, he says, It is God who removes kings and who establishes kings. So this king, this insolent, arrogant, ungodly, blaspheming, setting himself equal to God, king is there because it's the will of God that he be there. It's the ordination of God. doesn't mean God created him to be evil. It is very clear this king is volitionally doing what he wants to do. He's not being made to do any of this. And that's never true of any of the evil kings that they're made to do things. They, they are fully engaged with their will to do what they do. But yet, over superintending all of that is God who is orchestrating his great eternal plan for his own purposes, for his own will, to accomplish what he desires to be accomplished. And you notice that here it says the reason this happens is because of transgression. So I think it's up for debate. Is that the transgression of the people of God? Or is that the transgression of the king himself? And you can't be dogmatic, right? You don't know. I lean toward it's the king himself. It's the king's transgression. And I'll show you why in just a minute as we get a little further along. Um, but I, I can't say absolutely that's true. We don't, we don't get any hint here that the Jews are doing anything that transgresses. I mean, they're offering the sacrifices. They apparently are doing what the Mosaic law called them to do. And this king comes in and overruns them, desecrates the temple, kills scores of them. Okay, so, um, but it's because of transgression. And it's God who is in control, but the king has power in the human element, and he does what he desires to do. You notice it says that he flings truth to the ground. So it doesn't matter what is right, doesn't matter what is true, doesn't matter what the scriptures say, doesn't matter what the religions say, none of that matters. The king just throws it all and says, I'll do what I want to do because I'm the king. And so he does. And one of the things he wants to do, and actually, I think we'll see this very clearly. He's angry because he just lost a battle. And so he takes his anger out on the Jewish people, and this is the way he does it. I'll try and show you that out of history as we get a little, after we get the interpretation unfolded, and then we look at the annals of history to see what did happen to the Jews after the Grecian Empire. Because this is clearly after after Alexander the Great, one of the four other kingdoms. I believe it's the Seleucid kingdom, and it's Antiochus who is the king. But we'll, get, we'll look at that in more detail a little later on. So this king doesn't care. He disregards everything that is right and does what he wills. Now, David, yeah. Is there one other group? <laughs> king, yeah. Yeah. Who are unbelieving. Right. It's the same thing we have today, right? And you see that in Revelation. Yeah, I mean, there's no, no secret here 
that um, you do have the king who is evil and to the core, and then you have the people who truly love God and truly worship God. And then you have those who think they truly love God. They've duped themselves into believing that. They've been duped by pastors who've told them they love God, and yet they don't. And they're grouped in with those who do love God because that's the story about the wheat and the tares. They'll be sifted out later. There will be a distinction made, but not yet. And so there are scores of people, you know this to be true, who go to church week after week after week in our society because it's the right thing to do, who've never been transformed by the power of God. Well, well they, and they do good works. I mean, in that, in that parable, they do good works, the right things to do, and yet they never knew God. And they never were transformed. And that's true today. You know people like that who go to church, who pretend to be believers, but yet are not. And, and you, you know, we can't judge them and we can't distinguish that because we can't see the heart. But God knows the heart. And he will make those distinctions later. He allows it to carry on now. Why? For his own purposes. And so we have to be very careful as we study the scriptures. One, to try and get it right, to believe what rises out of the scriptures. But second, not to judge those who don't agree with us, but to lovingly try and win them to the Lord. They're not our enemies. They may be God's enemies, but they're not our enemies. So... The scriptures here are explicit that many of the true believers of God are killed and massacred, along with a lot of those who pretend. You know, when, when it comes down to it, when you're either going to die or renounce your faith, the unbelievers renounce their faith. The true believers die. That's the way this works. It's the way it's worked all through history. It's the way that it works today in some countries. Thankfully, not yet in ours. Okay, verse 13 and continuing in Daniel chapter 8. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that holy particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror, so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. So this king is destroying the people of God, but it doesn't go on forever. It's limited to 2,300 days. Now, it's, it's interesting, this is Daniel, still in his vision, hearing voices in his vision, seeing people speaking in his vision as it continues. And we don't know who these people are, right? It's just one speaking and then another one cries out, how long is this going to last? 
And then the answer is given, it's going to last for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, the interesting thing about this, I mean, we, we've seen it a couple of times. Remember in chapter 7, we weren't given definition of how long things last. It lasts for a time, times, and half a time. And that's up for interpretation. And we went several places to try and interpret that, that I believe it represents one plus two plus a half, three and a half years. Um, but that's, again, up for debate. Um, <clears throat> here, there's no ambiguity. It's 2,300 evenings and mornings. And if you, we took time to go to the um, account in Genesis, when you talk about days, and I don't know what you believe about the creation. I believe it's six literal days because the scripture says, and there was evening and there was morning, and that was the first day. In verse 5 of Genesis 1, verse 8, there was evening and there was morning, that was the second day. And then so on, verse 13, verse 19, verse 23, verse 31, until you have evening and morning in six days. So I think that's pretty clear. I really do, um, but yet there are people who disagree with me and think that was millions of years, and uh, even true believers who go that direction, and I just don't. Um, it's pretty clear to you, I'm a six-day creation guy. I'm a new earth guy. I don't believe the earth is millions of years old. I believe it's a little over 6,000 years old, but that's all up for interpretation. Um, so um, there are people who disagree with me, with me who, who love God every bit as much as I do maybe more, who violently <laughs> disagree with what I believe. But that's okay. I'm all right with that. Um, I just believe what I believe the scripture says. So this holy one who's doing the speaking, both of them are called holy ones. So um, those could be angels probably who are in this vision and who are talking to one another called holy um, by the the one given Daniel the vision, which is God. And so he asked, how long will the transgression continue? Here's why I think it's the transgression of the king and not of the people. Because the transgression only lasts for 2,300 years, and it's the, sorry, 2,300 days, and it's the 2,300 days when the king is overcoming the people of God. So I think the transgression is that of the king, but I'm not going to argue with you about that. Um, so it, it doesn't really matter. Um, what we do know is this is limited in scope. And if you use 360 days as a year, like the Jewish calendar does, then this is um, six and a half years, not quite 6.38 years. Um, and just I'll just throw this out there for you. If you go to months, it rounds to 77 months. So don't know what that means, but that's the way it comes out. Um, so it is limited in scope and duration. It only lasts for 2,300 days. Now that's a long time, right? I mean, to be persecuted and uh, the temple of God to be desecrated for six and a half years is a long time. But in relative expanse, it's not that long of a time. When you look at history, and you look at the Jewish people, it's relatively brief. Um, but it does happen. And we'll see amazingly how accurate those days are to what Antiochus Epiphanes did in Jerusalem. It's 
it's a little startling actually, but we'll get to that later. Um, <clears throat> you notice here, this is important, that the holy place is not destroyed, is desecrated, but not destroyed. That again narrows down to when this could be in history because the temple is restored at the end of it. So if you restore it, it wasn't torn down because there's no evidence of any rebuilding of this holy place. And so it wasn't destroyed. It was defiled clearly, but it wasn't destroyed. So that narrows down when this could be in history. Couldn't be 70 AD. Couldn't be when Nebuchadnezzar came in because those destroyed the temples. So this one didn't. So it's unique. It's different. Okay? So that'll be important as we get to the interpretation. Uh, all of these things are important for us to read what the scripture says and allow the scripture to tell us what it means as opposed to imposing something on the scripture and then trying to show what it means. There's a difference. And so I, to the best of my ability, with all of my preconceived notions, with all of my presuppositions, that you try and discard, but you can't, you come and you read these passages and ask God to speak to you. Even the book of Daniel, yes. <laughs> okay, that's always the approach, right? All right, verse 15, it appears to me here that the vision is over that the vision doesn't continue. Because Daniel says, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, if you've seen the vision, kind of means the vision is over, right? So I take it that the vision is over. I sought to understand it, and behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. Doesn't mean it is a man, but he at least has the appearance of a man. And he's standing before Daniel. So Daniel, apparently at this point, has come to his senses out of the vision, which happened while he was laying on his bed. And there's this man who is indescriptive standing in front of him. Okay, and so then, in verse 16, I heard a voice of a man between the banks of the Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So the identity of the man, or the appearance of a man, is the angel Gabriel. First time in all of scripture that the name of an angel is given is right here, this verse. This is the first place. And his name is Gabriel. This is the same angel who brought the message first to Zacharias, why he was in the Holy of Holies and told him about his son and who he would be and told him about Christ. And then the angel appeared to Mary. He's the one who says most favored one, which perplexes her. So this Gabriel is a messenger. He brings what God asked him to bring to these people. And you notice here that the one who calls out to him to give this man an understanding is between the banks of the Uli. Now, where is between the banks? It's in the river, right? I mean, if you're between the banks, you're in the river. 
And you remember, this is the Yulai River. It runs to the west of the ancient city of Susa, which was in the Persian king in the province of Elam. This is, we've uncovered this. Archaeologists have discovered this place. It was built on four mounds. You remember we talked about all of that. And this river is on the western side, on the western side of the citadel, which is where Daniel has been. And Daniel hears a voice from the middle of the river. So I believe that's the voice of God calling out to Gabriel, giving Gabriel command to give Daniel an understanding of what this vision means. So God didn't just give Daniel a vision, just like in chapter 7, and just leave him in us to not know what it means. But God explicitly gives the interpretation of both of these visions so that we will know what it means. It's not given for confusion, it's given for clarity. And so Gabriel is now going to give Daniel an understanding of what this vision means, or at least some more details about what it means. So that's where we'll pick up next time. Um, we'll right here, if the Lord wills, in verse 15, uh, 17, and we'll go forward, and we'll see what Gabriel says that this vision means. And um, he gives some more details than what we've seen so far. And so um, <clears throat> these visions are intended to give us understanding. They're not intended to give us confusion. And so we ought to approach them that way, that they will give us understanding. Go ahead, Keith. This means that he actually saw the angel Gabriel. That this is not the vision. He actually saw it. Yeah, Keith said that he actually saw the angel Gabriel. I'll, I'll let you decide that. <laughs> okay. Is he still in his vision or is he out of his vision? He says he's out. And then in the next verse, in verse 18, I think it is, he'll fall into a, a deep sleep as, as, as the angel explains the vision. So does he come out of this vision and then go back into a vision? Um, possibly. Possibly he's still in the vision. After I'd seen that part, then this angel came and spoke to me and I got an explanation of it. I mean, you could go both ways. And so I'm not going to say one or the other. I'll leave that up to you. To decide. Yeah, this, is this is what? This is haunting. Haunting? Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Okay. Um, when it's over, yeah. it's Hanukkah. This is where the, what, he, what he means is that when the temple is restored is where the festival of lights, Hanukkah, came from. Is after this desecration when they restored the temple they celebrated with the Festival of Light, which is today's Hanukkah. That's what you meant, right? Okay, yeah, so he's ahead of me. All right, thanks for your time. <laughs>